0: Um, hey guys welcome back to the team time podcast today we're really excited to have uh dan cooper he's a really talented man um he's done a lot he's uh ex special forces in the australian army um, elite sports strength and conditioner and uh, researcher consultant and adventurer um, so, Coops, thanks for uh, your time and welcome to the show, man.
1: Yeah, no, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to come on, and thanks for inviting me.
0: All good, bro. So, um, yeah, if, just for yourself, like, where did you grow up, um, and how would you describe your upbringing?
1: Um, See, so yeah, I grew up outside of Sydney, so in the Lower Blue Mountains, so kind of semi-rural sort of environment. Oh, nice. um, and I sort of, I don't mean, know, I sort of look at it as pretty standard sort of Australian upbringing. Um, so, dad was a tradesman, mum was a uh, stay-at-home mum sort of thing. So I went to a small school, I think where there was about 80 students in the primary school. Um, so like I thought that was pretty good and I think there's a lot of benefits that came out of that. Sort of played in the bush a lot, had motorbikes when I was sort of a teenager. Um, you know, we were able to go off into the bush, play around with bows and that sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, I don't know, sort of, I don't know, I thought it was pretty normal sort of upbringing, nothing sort of good or bad. You know, my parents were really good parents. Um, and then sort of went through high school kind of like a lot of kids got or a lot of boys got disinterested in around year 10, year 11 sort of thing that stayed on and then I did a trade uh, as a shop fitter when I finished school and then on the back of that I joined the army sort of thing so um, yeah sort of I don't know nothing really significant yeah. about my childhood Fair
0: enough. What, um, was there anything that interested you as a kid like um we just kind of uh um, yeah,
1: so i played a lot of rugby league when i was young uh and sort of was keen to play professional rugby league but out there where i was there was thousands of kids who wanted to play professional rugby league so oh, wow. um most of it, my dream by the way sort of thing to reality um sort of things i played a little bit when i was in the army but that was something i always enjoyed and then played rugby um sort of, uh, socially for a number of years afterwards um, at school I always wanted to be marine biologist for some reason I just had an interest in the ocean and that sort of thing wow. um, quite a tough job to get into and to be honest I'm kind of glad I didn't go to university because there's not, not a lot of work in that role anyway yeah, and then you yeah, always had an interest in the military um, or in special forces sort of thing so when I was young there was an interest I didn't actually see myself going into that role but mm obviously develop later on and sort of you get your opportunities and you take them.
0: Yeah, fair enough. So what um, led you to yeah, the army um, after school? Was it, was it like a program that was happening or uh, did you just apply for it?
1: Um, yes, yeah, so I was always interested in it. Uh, and then my brother went into the army a few years in front of me um, and then he came back to just a lot of really good stories from exercises they were doing, training they were doing. Um, and it was just sort of, Seemed like a really good team environment, a lot of sort of close knit people around you. It just seemed like something that offered a lot of things that you just normally wouldn't get, sort of thing. So, I mean, as a young bloke, it just seemed like a really exciting job where there's always new adventure, always something to do. Uh, and I'd sort of got to the point where, as a cabinet maker, I'd finished, I'd had enough sort of just making boxes and putting bench tops on them and doors. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I sort of looked at it and thought, you know, it be a good job for a couple of years, something exciting. And then on the end of that, I could
0: sort of see what happened from there. So how many years did you end up spending um, in the army after you first like enlisted?
1: Yeah, so I ended up being there for 22 years. Oh, wow. um, <laughs> so I enlisted and you sign on for four, and I was kind of just like, I'll do my four years, I'll see what happens. Yeah. Uh, I kind of had it in my mind that I'd give uh, selection of shots I'd try out for special forces. Um, and if I got in there, great. If I didn't, you know, at least I had a go. So then I think I was around the three, three and a half year mark where I applied and did the selection course for Special Forces. Um, and if I didn't get in, I was going to leave because I'd had enough for the Army by that stage. It was just a, a number of things within the regular Army that I just sort of lost interest with. Uh, and I thought if I get into Special Forces, I'll do that for a few years and then see what happens from there. Um, yeah, and then sort of 22 years goes by and you realise that, you, know, you come to a point where it's probably
0: time to leave, yeah. So, you spent most of your time in the special forces, um,
1: yeah. So, it's about 18 years oh, wow. I spent there. So, uh, I got in in 2001, so just prior to September 11. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I pretty much done my training, finished up on that, and went into sort of full time, uh, qualified position. And then, yeah, we just got really, really busy for the next sort of 14 years or so, yeah. 15 a lot, years, What was
0: happening overseas within that time frame, like in Afghanistan, is it a lot of your um, yeah. missions were? Yeah, so I deployed to
1: Afghanistan in 02 for the first time there. Um, so sort of still fairly young, fresh off my training cycle. Um, so I was over there for, I think it was a six month tour early on. And then it was almost every second year after that, I was there or somewhere around there. So um, yeah, just got really busy. And then just because you're so busy, time passes so fast that before yeah. you know it, yeah, you know, sort of closing on 40 and you have got young kids and it's you know, trying to find something right? some routine to do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, really, really busy time and really, really interesting. Um, obviously there's a lot of sort of adversity and that sort of stuff yeah. associated with that. Um, but yeah, definitely I think I'm a lot better off for it. Yeah. Those experiences and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, like it's quite a long time. I look back on it.
0: That's interesting. I, I actually just, um, I was YouTubing the like selection process, uh, for the SAS um and so yeah just kind of going back what was that selection process like for you back then um in was it 2001 or 2002
1: yeah so it was 2001 um and I didn't know much about it like yeah. there wasn't a lot of information around it then and to be honest I was kind of happy with that I didn't go seeking it because so I thought if you know too much then you kind of get worried about yeah, it so fair. I thought
0: right, just go and do it
1: fair <laughs> <laughs> you can't you can't change it it's going to happen yeah. um so, but I just went on with the attitude that I wasn't going to withdraw on my own because m- most people will self withdraw or they pull off um, voluntary. So I thought yeah. I'll just go if I get, then yeah, like they either carry me off or I get to the end. And then when you get to the end, you sort of assessed on everything you do. And if you seem deemed suitable, then you continue on. Um, so I thought I'll, I'll get to the end and they can make the decision based on what they've seen. So uh, it was tough. There's no point lying about the fact that it's tough and specifically designed to be like that.
0: Yep.
1: Um, and then the last week is when you go into all your sleep deprivation. Uh-huh. You know, you're not allowed to eat all these sort of things. So you go literally two or three days, I think it was from memory, without any food. You have next to no sleep, and you're still carrying stuff around. Like the, the physical work still maintained. Um, so by the end of that week, you're almost exhausted. And you get to the point where I guess about lunchtime and you're struggling to stay awake and you start thinking to yourself that surely this has to end. Like, surely this is a joke and it's going to end today. Um, but in reality, like, you know you've got another two days or so of it. Oh, man. Uh, and then, like, it finally ends and you're just too exhausted to celebrate. Kind of just have a beer and then you're off to sleep.
0: So how long is the whole um, selection process? Uh, I think it's 19 days. Oh, from
1: man. memory. Yeah, pretty much three weeks. But... Yeah, yeah the first phase of it, sort of four or five days, isn't that intense. Um, so there's a little bit of instructional stuff on there, a little bit of testing, um, a little bit of sleep deprivation, that sort of thing, but it's not as intense. Like You just couldn't maintain that level of intensity for three weeks. So it yeah. sort of eases into it. And then there's a period where you are just out on your own walking around for five days, um, where you've got ration packs, you know, you've got water, you're just doing checkpoint to checkpoint, just covering distance. So that's sort of not too bad. And as soon as the sun goes down, you just jump straight into bed and off you go till the sun comes up. So you're only moving during the hours of daylight. So uh, um, sort of a, almost a rest period, and that's where most of the guys enjoy it because you're on your own. You're sort of just working and yeah. moving during the day. Covering a fair bit of distance, you're still doing a fair bit of work, but kind of in control of your own sleep. So you make the most of that. Man, that's
0: interesting, man. Um, so f- from the beginning of the selection process, how many of yous actually made it through uh, to the end? Um, was...
1: Yeah, so on my one it's quite small. So traditionally, it's probably um, anywhere between, say around 100, 150 people will start yeah. and then just 30 to 40 will finish. One I did, uh, they'd done it a little bit different. So they had a three-day period where they sort of put everyone under duress before the selection course. And from there, they just selected 30 people to go through do the selection course, oh, wow. so we had, we started with thirty, and we finished with six. Um, so by the end of it, there was more instructors and observers, and there were actual sort of students oh, on the course. So, <laughs> as we say, there was no place to be a grey man; you kind of <laughs> two three people watching you at any one point. Um, but yeah, it wasn't too bad. And then, sort of, I think from that, they ended up being three of us going through and doing the actual learning sort of thing. So uh, they ended up having a run another one not long after, so we had enough yeah. people to do what we needed. So what makes, but, the,
0: yeah, it's not, that's not a lot, man. Um, what makes SAS <laughs> different than just the like the normal kind of army? Um, it's probably a lot is- around the training. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so it's a, it's a lot more specialized missions sort of thing. So like essentially it pro- it solves problem sets that the regular army can't solve. So okay. um, things where you need a specialized force or it's got a more of a complex problem um, then that's when you utilize these sort of more special missions units. Um, they just solve non-conventional type problems sort of thing. So, you know, yeah. that's sort of probably lower risk so they can go in and get a job done with less risk sort of thing mm-hmm. if that's one kind of your concerns yeah. and, then you know, they come out. But there's a limit, obviously, to what a small force can achieve.
0: Yep. So how many are in that regiment um, of the SAS? Like um, how many uh, soldiers is it made up of? Yeah, as
1: I say, probably, I couldn't give you an exact number. It's be somewhere between one and 200, I think. Okay. Around there. So it's not a... It's not a lot. It's not a NATO unit, yeah. So it's not like a sort of a, a massive US-style Special Forces unit. Um, it's sort of quite small. But the Australian Army is not that big. So relative to the Army, okay. it's kind of about the size it needs to be.
0: Yeah. So what's it, um, what's it like compared to like the other um, Special Forces in other countries? Is there... Bit of, like, a, a standard market compared to others that you that that would know. Of. <laughs> um, it's actually a lot
1: of similarities, so okay. uh, I guess it's probably similar to like if you looked at elite level rugby union, like you go overseas and oh, it's a I lot see. of the same, you know, what I mean, like Makes it's but you fit into those environments really well because they're apart from a few cultural dif- differences or sort of some differences from what they do specifically, yeah. like it's the same guy almost. Yeah, so, see. when you go these. There's a lot of similarities between us and the other special forces we work with. You know, sort of very similar mindsets, very sort of similar sort of professionalism, that sort of thing. It's just more around, you know, what their actual country does, their culture, that sort of thing. And then um, we'll sort of probably not as well resourced as the US special forces, so we still rely on a lot of their equipment, and technology, I see. sort of thing. Um, so probably funding-wise, we're probably a little bit smaller, and there were smaller special forces than us, Fair. obviously but yeah, a lot of similarities, like really easy to integrate within other similar units.
0: Yeah. Was there any um, kind of mission that stands out to you as like one of your most challenging kind of missions that, um, that you experienced? Um, Yeah, I
1: don't know, like such variation in what we did. So when we first went into Afghanistan, we were more sort of mobile in vehicles. So we might go out for 30 days in vehicles. and then come back and then towards the end we're sort of using a lot more um, helicopters and these sort of things mm-hmm. but we're very short intense missions yeah. so you know it might be a, a 30-hour period without sleep where we're out sort of minimal food just doing what we need to do compared to the early days where we'll be out for 30 days but you're just sort of baking in the sun you know during the day so sort of sleeping minimal food um, mm-hmm you know, all your water, everything you carry it with you just gets cooked in the sun, so you're drinking warm water all day. So, um, yeah, I don't know, it's sort of, there was a lot of times where it was difficult. Um, you kind of just push through it, like you, once you're over there, you literally have no choice but to you know, get the job done, so you just kind of learn to push past things.
0: Yep. did you, um, was there a lot of casualties during, during your time, like any of your close mates? Um kind of experience yeah
1: so i lost a few while i was over there um not on any specific rotations or jobs i was on i had a few you get shot while i was there here and there um but i think in the main part we we're pretty lucky compared to a lot of other forces so we didn't get a lot of explosives like some of them oh, were doing okay.
0: yeah
1: yeah we sort of in comparison to other allied forces we sort of we we're pretty lucky i think So i think um i can't remember the exact number but it's less than sort of 10 i think Casualties that we took all up, or um, which I think might only be about five or six, but yeah, we did sort of quite well as far as that was concerned. A so, um, few guys that have banged up and got some interesting scars, but you know, no real, or well, from where I was, there's no real amputees or any of these sort of things. Oh, up.
0: And how was your like um, when you're over there? Did you see how did your preparation really help you? Or was there times that you kind of drew back on what you, um, yeah, what your training had? I you.
1: Yeah, so um, we sort of spend most of our time in preparation training for life sort of thing. So like we try and replicate what we're going to do as much as we can in training and then we just run through so many different scenarios that no matter what happens in front of you, you kind of prepared to solve that problem or you've solved it, something similar in the past. Um, and then it, it's a lot of experience as well. So okay. the first time I went, I was sort of fairly underprepared, I reckon um sort of things you just try and get by as best you can make sure that you're sort of not making any mistakes Mm -hmm. you know just trying not to mess anything up really on your first rotation Um, and then you sort of you get experience and the more you get experience the more comfortable you are working within that environment Uh, and then you sort of we started evolving what we're doing so we evolved our training to suit so it was always trying to make sure our preparation is one step ahead of our actual occupational demands um Sort of and in some of those environments it's quite difficult because your opponents are evolving so fast as well yeah. so you know you always want to make sure that you're as best prepared as you can be or at least you've closed that gap from training through to performance as best you can so um yeah sort of some things we were all well prepared for others we sort of got caught out but thankfully nothing too bad
0: okay was um from when you first started to when you ended was there a lot of changes in how you did things like with technology and different advancements in uh, weaponry and things like that?
1: Yeah, so by the time I left, we'd almost completely changed from the time I'd started, sort of thing. So huge advancements in technology. And one of the things with that sort of environment is because it's also such a big industry as well in the US. So a lot of your industry over there, they start making specific military items because it becomes a big business for them almost. So you see so much more advances in technology because the money's there when you are under those sort of environments. So um, there was a, a huge amount of changes in everything like the equipment, mm-hmm. um, not so much the weapons we had themselves, because uh, that's a much bigger process for Army to go through that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, like pretty much all our clothing, all our equipment, everything, our vehicles, everything completely changed. Oh, wow. The way we were doing business changed, our mission had changed, um, sort of thing. So, you know, when I left, everything was so much better than when I started. Mm-hmm. But then, guys, complaining that they haven't got what they need and i was like well 10 years ago we we're fighting nothing now everything, yeah, everything and they've they've still got, yeah, like they've still got nothing um so you know as, as good off as good off as you are people will still find things that they need or problems um but yeah we're definitely a lot better off at the end that's for sure
0: yeah that's so good that's that's awesome um and what was like um what was life like because after military because i know during it like um, were you did you have your children um during your time in the uh, military or was it after everything happened
1: yeah so they were pretty much after so uh, towards the end okay so we sort of everything was starting to quiet down and we had pretty much an understanding of an exit date sort of thing so uh, as things got quieter that's when i started doing a lot of study as well because i figured that you know, I had all these good skills, but there's not much use for them outside of the Army. Um, as you go into security, I just wasn't interested in that. So I thought, oh, I need something else to do. And I would always, always had a real passion for fitness. Um, yeah. So I started doing my study. And then we sort of started a young family then, uh, just because I didn't want to have kids and never be around. Okay. So we sort of had them. And then as I started to get older, that's when I started that transition process, which sort of takes a fair while. Or a fair while um but yeah i sort of wouldn't have wanted to start it any later on i think
0: fair enough was there some guys in the military that had families and things like that
1: uh, yeah a lot of them a lot of them will do their whole career with kids no, really? um that's tough man so, yeah, yeah yeah well the kids don't see their dad that much so then um and a lot of the guys that's one of their frustrations is they're away so much yeah they don't see them that often and then you know when you're not away working you come back and there's still requirements to go away and train, and go away and do sort of military courses these sort of things oh, so, yeah, you're away like eight, nine months of the year at times, sort of thing. Nice. So you know, like there's a lot of sort of kids that are almost fatherless, you know. Like they've got great relationships with their dads, but the dad's it's just never there as much. Most yeah. Yeah. So, sort of get frustrated because they like to be at home at more. So anything they're doing which is not really necessary, they just get frustrated oh, like, well, at well, yeah. yeah. it.
0: Goodness. Yeah, yeah, that's tough. So what um what studies did you get into? Um that you can, what did you complete after the, the military or during it towards the end?
1: Yeah, so I went and did a Bachelor's of Science uh, and then I did a Master's in Strength and Conditioning. And oh. a lot of that was around helping develop the way they were doing their training or their Strength and Conditioning programs oh. where I was. So it was not uh, always sort of fairly informal. So we're just trying to create some structure for it. Uh, so I just went and did those two. And then I did a Master's of Research sort of as I was leaving. Um, and then sort of that was over about an eight-year period. Oh, wow. And during that time i sort of was meeting a lot of dudes in the industry creating a group of a network sort of thing and then uh, i was always intrigued in sport like, you know how much better would sport be than what i was in and i was always interested in it and then some opportunity or an opportunity came up obviously uh,
0: and that's when i went to the reds how did you find that there that's obviously when i met you um, what was your um time like at the reds
1: yeah i enjoyed it um i actually found the playing group there to be really really good yeah Sort thing so um because i would had a little bit to do with sports programs here and there, but nothing really in depth. Uh, and some of the programs I've been to, there's some real variation in what those playing groups are like or, yeah, you know, yeah. sort of a level of expectation of this sort of, and that. Um, but, yeah, when I got to the Reds, um, they were really good. I really enjoyed the playing group there um, sort of thing. So that's yeah, so I think I probably spent probably too much time down in the gym or yeah. hanging around with the guys chatting so, you know, yeah, it was really good. I enjoyed the time
0: there. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, that's cool, man. I guess it's a good experience as well, like working in that environment.
1: Um, yeah, that yeah, definitely. Because when I was with the military, there was no one really above me sort of mentoring me through uh, the strength and conditioning process. So when I got to the Reds, I was, about, you know, experienced people around me that start to show you, you know some of the things that you just weren't aware of. So as far as sort of professional development, it was a really good step to go in there and then yeah. I could see all the areas where I was sort of had shortfalls or I needed to grow. Um, uh, so as far as the mentoring side, it was a really, really good step for professional development.
0: Yeah, that's really good. Because I remember we're doing that we did that um, army camp. I think, were you there for both of the army camps or just one? <laughs> yeah, both. For both. And yeah, that's probably, some of the, I always tell my wife, man, I don't, I don't ever want to do one again. When I came here, we <laughs> went to the army base just a couple of weeks ago, one of the French army bases. And we did like obstacle yeah. So It was nothing like what we did back in Australia, but um, yeah, those were pretty tough times. Is that that's kind of yeah. just normal, like what what we would do? That was uh, pretty hard. Was uh,
1: That's the extreme end of anything. So yeah. like that doesn't <laughs> represent anything in military life, really. Um, oh, I see. So it's just like that would be a snippet of a selection course sort of thing. So um, the military uses those sort of things here and there as a bit of like a hardening tool. Um, or to test people those sort of things but yeah, they've become popular with sports programs just to get guys well out of their comfort zone you Um, know with the idea that that you work out what going deep into the locker looks like sort of thing or deep into a hole so that in a game you're like well I've been a lot worse than this so this isn't a problem sort of thing so as far as your work capacity and what you're capable of doing it just gives you a much bigger context of what you can do um, sort of things but some guys take advantage of that and make the most. But other guys sort of just go into survival, get through the camp, and then yeah, you know, yeah. never want to it again. So,
0: <laughs> but no, it actually was like I, I can, I, I never enjoyed it. But I think after, um, you kind of can look back at different things and can realize that man, you can go through hard things, and you kind of see like yeah, with your teammates as well. Like who's willing to go through some of that stuff with <laughs> you, or who's gonna fold. <laughs> so yeah can, it's, a, it's a big learning experience like just personally but also for um like as a team environment because like you said it's a you're working together with with other people it's not just yourself eh?
1: yeah yeah definitely you can see who's going to stand up when things are difficult um like you get it as an observer and outsider you get to see how well people communicate when they're under pressure True. um you know who kind of is willing to stand up who sort of hides into the shadows and these sort of things um you know but it's, it's good to understand, sort of thing, but on the field, you know, if someone's really talented, you know, there's sort of a, I think they get a bit of leniency here and there around their work ethic. Yeah. Sort of true. Um, you know, it's, it's part of a, for me, it's much, it's part of a much bigger strategy sort of thing. It's not a standalone activity that you do to harden everyone. It's just something that you have within, you know, everything else within the toolbox you have as a coach, I think, or as yeah. a program. But, yeah. there like some of the, like the camps were pretty funny just watching the way the players sort of identified each other and some of the
0: chat going on yeah yeah it's it's, it's different different than just normal <laughs> preseason training but it was good um but yeah going along i've i've read a bit about uh, like one of your posts about how um suicide's been like third highest cause in death uh for 10 to 14 year olds and um that as parents we can prevent that by allowing our tr- children to like experience discomfort but um, not protecting them all the time, um, like a, as a parent of two, like how do you do that? How do you achieve that with your own kids? Um, that yeah, that, um, ideology. To be honest,
1: I don't do anything different, okay. uh, sort of things. So I was kind of when I was raised, it was sort of you know go out and have fun. There's obviously there's some safety guidelines yeah. around what fun looks like, sort of thing. And yeah, you know, admittedly, it is a slightly different world now than what it was. Um, sort of thing like the world's a lot busier there's a lot more people these sort of things um and where i was i had a lot more space so I, like i could go out the back fence and there's you know hundreds of acres of national park behind me yep. sort of thing so um like free play there looks a little bit different than where we are now because it's the suburbs sort of thing so i'm you know, less likely to let my eight-year-old just wander the suburbs um sure. with a gang of other year olds but it's sort of you know i don't deliberately expose them to anything it's sort of just let them confront their problems. Like life, I think life throws enough problems at kids or sort of yeah. gives them enough exposure for them to develop tools. But then it's sort of trying to get them to solve their own problems or just manage their problem solving. So you know, a lot of times if they get into trouble, it's more around when they come to us for help, it's like, okay, well, what have you done to try and solve your own problems? You know, what what have tools have you got that you've exhausted before you've come sure. to me? So if they haven't done anything, then we'll just send them off to solve their own problem. Um, you know, and then you make an assessment as whether you need to step in straight away. You know, obviously, if there's potential harm or something like that, you step in. Um, but I guess it's just kind of—I look at it like traditional parenting, where you know you just sort of guide your kids, and then as they get older, you start to give them more input into the decisions. You know, so when they're younger, you make most of the decisions for them, and they—they get older, you kind of just give them more and more authority in their own decisions, and then kind of at a point, you know, you're just guiding their decisions, to sort of it's their life. You know, yeah. Let them give it how they want to do it, and you just offer some advice, sort of thing. Um, you know, some sort of I look at what mistakes I'll probably made in my life, and so oh, it's like I don't want them to repeat those mm-hmm. mistakes. And even things I've believed for a long time, they're probably not that relevant now anyway. So, you know, I try not to pass on too many of my biases to my kids, yeah. you know, because some of them might not be serving them in the new or as the world evolves. Um, so, you yeah, know, it's sort of Parenting's a tough one, though. It is. There's a lot of information out there. Um, But yeah, that suicide statistic, that really surprised me when I read that. I was really shocked by that. That's crazy. Um, Yeah. because I I think it affects little
0: kids, yeah, Um, uh, in regards Uh, to
1: suicide. Yeah, a lot of them, there's always going to be that percentage that come from, or they have those lives where, you know, their lives are that bad or they're in such a bad environment that, you know, there's sort of, that's going to be an issue. And I don't really look at that per se sort of thing that's a much bigger drama than I'm yeah. capable of looking at. Um, but yeah, I sort of looked at my kids and I thought, you know, there's no chance that they would even contemplate that as an option. So, you know, how do you, how does a kid get to the point where that becomes exactly. an option? Yeah, I and mean, A lot of those kids were sort of fairly normal as well. Um, oh, like the US statistics and the numbers are horrifying. Um, sort of thing. But they do sort of talk about how a child probably can't relate its true feelings, so there's a bit of uh, um, potential misinterpretation in yeah, there as yeah. well. But even you know, when you look at the numbers, it's still it's like way beyond what it should be. Yeah. Um. Or then, and then I can't remember. I think it was some stuff in the Atlantic where I found it. Um, the actual articles, but there was an intervention where they were the actual intervention was for the parents, not for the kids.
0: Oh, wow. So they
1: were talking to the parents about not intervening in the kids' discomfort. So, you know. If, and the examples they used was say for a girl or a young girl who's in a classroom and she's uncomfortable about answering questions from a teacher. Like don't email the teacher to ask him not to answer uh, or ask questions a little girl because yeah. you're just accommodating that discomfort. It's like, well, you know, life's gonna be uncomfortable. So yeah. when they're younger, you sort of help them with getting the tools so that they are gonna be able to answer those questions a little bit more comfortably. You know what I mean? Like you can't you can't hype. You know so you know and a lot of kids they sort of i think they take on perceptions around what discomfort is and these sort of things you know what i mean like mm-hmm. little kids are happy to test and adjust on little things i think sometimes we prime them based on the way we act and the way we do things um sure. yeah you know, i mean my two boys will see me respond when something goes wrong and they look at that to see you know what's the response behavior when something gets broken so sure. you know Ten years ago if I dented my car I would have got angry. But now if I dented it it's a car. You know what yeah. I mean? Like there's nothing to it. Or if they dent the car, it's like, okay, well, you know, let's try and be careful, but, yeah. but I'm not gonna explode because the, the car got a dent in it, sort of thing. So you know, I've started to become understand what's a reasonable response to something. Yeah. You know, try and make sure that the kids understand that they're more important than our things.
0: Yeah, I think that's as important. well.
1: Yeah, but yeah, parenting's complex. I sort of try not to go into advising or anything like that yeah, it's yeah, more fair I'm it's trying to mag- understand
0: it. yeah Let's <laughs> yeah. yeah. just trying
1: to get information out
0: there to get people to start thinking yeah that's cool that's that's really good because yeah like you said parenting is complex like my the way my two sons uh, respond to like discipline is so different so we have to discipline them yeah. differently you know what I mean um yeah yeah what are your views on on, on disciplining like is that uh, obviously it's an important part like me myself growing up my dad used to discipline us pretty hard sometimes physically yeah um but i think that's just all he knew at the time um so yeah what are your views on that and what has yeah your life and military life taught you about that
1: yeah so like i got smacked when i was naughty when i was younger um you know and i sort of look back on it and like for me it was it would have been justified because i would have been a turd of a kid um <laughs> so i don't think that i probably got away with things that i probably shouldn't have at times um but i don't, I don't see it i think if it's excessive it's a real problem yeah um and i don't want to get into the should you or shouldn't you shouldn't hit your it's kids good, debate. Yeah, yeah.
0: Like, you know, like,
1: like, like there's no evidence either way really like there's a lot of evidence for both of the arguments and that sort of thing but there's no clear delineation as to what works Oh wow. um i have even seen stuff that the naughty corner creates problems because the kids are sitting there isolated thinking about what they've done and then their thought pattern creates a whole issue in itself because they internalize problems differently than what we think um so you know it's like there's no there's no real clear way to discipline a child um but i think you know there has to be consequence because i think you there's too many examples of people that are grown up consequence free yep. now within the world that just go around and whatever they want. Exactly. Um, I mean, but, you, know, you you have to align people's behaviors and values and these sort of things, but you know, the optimal way of doing it, I don't know. Sure. Um, so like we, we probably threaten our kids more than anything else. And then it's based around taking away things that they enjoy, yep. you know, and then sort of rewarding behavior sort of thing. Cause obviously we want, to go down a good behavior path not the avoidance of bad behavior paths exactly. so, um but yeah there's times when they string you out you find yourself yelling at them and yeah. threatening to take things off them for a week and all that stuff. <laughs> they're kids they know, they know how to push all your button <laughs> um sort of, you know, <laughs> yeah then when i was in the military that's very much discipline so the military is all about avoidance you know of uh-huh. getting people to avoid punishment through behavior so you know, that's a lot more around compliance than anything else um, sort of thing. So, you know, I've always been a bit adverse to trying to create environments where people are really compliant through punishments mm-hmm. and trying to get environments where people are actually self-motivated to do the right thing yeah. sort of thing. So, uh, you yeah, know, so I, when I was at the Reds, I came in there with the attitude, it's about encouraging people to do the right thing, develop the right behaviours, those sort of things, and trying to, you know, punish them with, with extra fitness and these sort of things so that they're just avoiding being yelled at Um, so I think if you can self-motivate someone it works a lot better especially in an environment where you're on the field or something like that because when you're out there it's on you you know what I mean so if you're really well self-motivated you're gonna go that extra bit do the right thing sort of thing not get penalized for doing something lazy or that sort of thing so um, very much Probably a similar attitude I use with my kids is just trying to promote the right behaviors mm. rather than avoidance of patients and that sort of thing. Uh, yeah.
0: And but, let them govern themselves. Yeah. Like if they,
1: yeah. 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 We yeah. yeah, want to instill values and that sort of thing, I think. Um, you know, or, or at least give them some parameters or guidelines where they can work out what their values are and these sort of things, what their purpose is, and then go down their own path rather than, you know, and you over discipline them, you run the risk of them turning against you as well. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, I've seen that it sent rebel pretty quick, so I don't know, they complex, and yeah, I don't know, I'm guessing what's going on in the head most of the time. So,
0: true, that. no, that's cool. So, you're um, you're, just, you're doing your PhD now. What's your study? What's the field of study at the moment that you're that you're working through?
1: Uh, so I'm kind of a, a mix of sort of sports science where I was, and then sort of uh, psychology, a little bit of neuroscience sort oh. of thing. So, I'm just trying to get an understanding out of those fields without going too deep into them because it's, you yeah. know, it's not entirely my field of expertise, yeah. but to answer my question, I need to understand a little bit around it, but it's back with the military looking at how to prepare guys for combat operations oh. sort of thing. So the more I look at it, the more I realise it's a lot around, um, improving someone's tolerance for threat or fear oh. type of thing. So, yeah. um, Looking at it as sort of a skill execution type of thing, but the cognitive process that underlies it is their ability to tolerate high threat. Wow.
0: Because in
1: the field, it. yeah, yeah. So, like, even experience-wise, I sort of anecdotally know that the first few times you're involved in uh, combat, you know sort of it's almost overwhelming to you sort of thing like the fear of death almost takes a hold of you mm-hmm. and stops people from performing and then you sort of you really yourself and you do what you need to do but you know after sort of 10 years it's kind of um, like I wouldn't say it's almost like driving to work but it's almost a routine oh, sort of thing where you know, you're sort of you're just really good at predicting what might be about to happen yeah. and then understanding the outcomes and these sort of things so it's just more about doing your job and you just sort of I wouldn't say comfortable, but your relationship with that fear has definitely changed yeah. so that it don't have as much of an impact on you.
0: How, how do you prepare for that, like in terms of, say, if, in the beginning of the SAS process, say like what you're learning now, how would you help prepare someone um, for for those experiences um, and give them a better shot? Yeah, well,
1: it's a lot about, them? Yeah, so it's a lot about just exposing them to a relevant threat sort of thing. So within that environment, a relevant threat is almost someone who's armed. Um, You know, if you're looking at sort of a sports environment or you put it into a rugby context, like a relevant threat is someone who's about to, you know, tear you up and attack them or something like that. Um, Or or for some people, it might even be, you know, missing a goal or something like that, like that's their threat. So everyone sort of has a little bit of a a different threat profile. Um, But... In preparing them for it, it's just trying to expose them as close as you can to the actual relevant threat that they're going to face. So, for a combat environment, like you can't physically shoot at somebody as they're trying to hit them, yeah, um, you know, because it's it's a bad idea in training. And for research ethics, it's probably just not going to get approved. But um, you can try and close that gap. So, you know, the less that gap is from their training exposure to actual performance in the environment, the less impact it has on them. So if you do no preparation, you've got a really big gap from training to performance where if you do all your preparation as close as you can to that environment where, you know, you are using some threats where there might be a bit of physical pain and these sort of things, then you, at least you've closed the gap. So there's less of a jump for them. Yeah, that's so, interesting. You know, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then a lot of that comes back down or sort of filters back down to kids as well, sort of thing. So, you know, you're just trying to give them the experiences when they're young, stuff that so they're going to encounter when they're older.
0: Yeah, yeah, man, that's so cool how it's all it's quite parallel between sports, military, and life um, in terms of, yeah, like preparing yourself um, the best you can and experiencing tough things because, yeah, like you said, life is tough and it doesn't get easy. If yeah, anything that yeah, gets yeah. harder the, the older you get with um, different situations and, <laughs> yeah. and things like that eh? yeah well the more you take yeah definitely
1: um yeah i mean like there's threats everywhere like every time you do something threat of the unknown is a massive threat because the unknown has all sorts of potential threats to it so that's one of people's biggest fears is just you know if i do this what happens if you've never done it before you've got no understanding of what might be there or you can't predict what's going to happen so that's when your biggest fears are sort of thing so Um, Like, there's fear in everything. So, that's why I'm a big proponent of just exposing yourself to different, as much different stuff as you can. You don't have to go, you know, and expose yourself deliberately to things that you're never going to encounter, but uh, at least don't hide on things you are going to eventually encounter because if you hide, then you just got zero preparation for when it happens.
0: Yeah, fair enough. That's interesting. You talk about that because obviously uh, I've seen you're preparing for the thousand mile race um did you want to talk to us a bit about that like um where that's happening how that's working and what you're kind of doing to prepare for it because yeah obviously a thousand miles that's a very long way
1: yeah um yeah like to be honest i can't even sort of fathom just how long that is so the longest i've been so far is 430 miles which is about 700 kilometers so this is like over double Double that that. um yeah, but double doesn't just mean double like double it gets a lot harder like the further you go the harder it gets so it's almost you know every day gets harder than the previous day after you get past that 500 miles sort of thing um and then because it's going so far into northern alaska just the environment itself gets a lot harder and harder and it's isolated um so yeah I don't know. Like, it's really difficult for me to predict what that's going to look like um but i'm sort of quite comfortable with the fact that it's going to be a lot of pain yeah. um so you know I was like, yeah, that, and I'll worry about that when it happens and just do the best I can to get through it are you
0: doing that by yourself
1: but, or with a mate or something? Yeah. um no it's, it's a it's a race but it's kind of a solo race oh, but okay. in saying that you sort of you're within a couple of hours of each other for the first sort of half and then on the second half you might sort of every time you hit a checkpoint which might be every sort of second day or so you, you're probably going to bump into somebody who's on their way out of that checkpoint so yeah. um and at the checkpoint, there's someone there. So you, sort of, you see someone every day or two. Um, but yeah, you've got to be quite comfortable working on your own in sort of isolation, looking after yourself. So like it's sort of – and there's a, a qualifying criteria to get on that. Oh, I don't man. just let anybody go and wander three frozen in Alaska. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, like I had to do some qualifying races to get onto the 350 mile, which I did this year. Uh and then that's a qualifier for the 1,000. So if you finish the 350 mile and show that you can survive out in the wilderness like that, then they sort of say, okay, yep, we're safe to do the full race. Because after you, Once you get past the Alaskan Range and into the interior a little bit from there, it's pretty remote. Like the, yeah. the villages are spread out sort of fairly, I think it's probably maybe 70 to 90 miles sort of thing for a lot of them. So it's kind of almost two days apart on foot. Wow.
0: That's a massive truck. Where did you do that 350 mile? Where was that done?
1: Uh, so that was in Alaska as well. So it's the first half of the other did a So that goes from Anchorage to a village called McGrath, which is just on the other side of the Alaskan range. Yep. Uh, and then the full thousand mile, you'll keep going from there. So McGrath is probably the last point you can get to where it's easy enough to get back to Anchorage once you pass McGrath and getting back becomes a real problem. Sort of thing. So like, it's only accessed by sort of seaplanes out there because they just land on the snow or the ice, sort of on these frozen lakes, that sort of thing. But there needs to be somebody there to mark out the airfield for them or sort of flatten the snow. So once you get past McGraw, it's sort of it's rescue helicopter or you get to a village if you need to get home yeah, and just get on the supply run back out. So um, yeah, I did that one. And it sort of it took me about two days to get back from there because it's sort of the mail run that you're waiting for to get back um and then sort of next year once i get past mcgrath it's almost easier to get to Nome, which is the 4000 mile to get home so it, it almost becomes about what's logistically the easiest way yeah, to get it's... home almost
0: <laughs> You got i to... think about it anyway, like i'm, got to I'm there. on the way now i've got to get there yeah yeah, yeah. so what do you do like, <laughs> well, there's to... a lot of... yeah what do you do to prepare um like every uh, do you have like a training regime or like, what do you actually physically do um to prepare
1: for yeah something? so i try and yeah, so I try and work around uh, my study and my kids and those sort of things. Yeah. So, you know, I'll be out early in the morning running and these sort of things. Um, and my wife sort of shift work, so i got to work in around that as well. So it's sort of just getting in what I can get done around the realities of life. Um, but to be honest, I'm never going to get the full volume of training I need for that sort of distance. And trying to obtain it, I'm probably going to break myself anyway because there's a limit to how much training you can do. Yeah. Um, yeah, as you know, sort of thing like that gets fairly closely monitored in rugby yeah. um, so where I'm sort of a bit looser and in my, my intensity is so low that my volume can fluctuate a little bit more yeah. but it's sort of yeah, it's mostly running uh, some cycling here and there where I don't have to drive just sort of try and get more time on feet uh, mm-hmm. and just build that as much as I can between now and then but but the one thing I've got going for me is just like 20 years worth of pack marching or load yeah. carriage in the military we've just so active so um, if I didn't have that background behind me, it would probably be a completely different story. Exactly. Sort of thing. So uh, like a lot of the guys that do them, they're sort of ultra runners, those sort of things where they build up, you know, from marathons through to oh. ultra marathons, and then they start these extreme distance events, and you don't really come across too many people that just woke up one morning
0: and thought, yeah, exactly. no, I'm going to cross. Yeah, they would have had, you did so, have a lot of kilometers in your legs. Uh, prior to doing that, yeah, to be able to help you endure that. Yeah, it's not normal for the normal person to be able to cope the, with that. Strain. <laughs> I don't think it's normal for anyone. Um, <laughs> There's times when I
1: do question it, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, like even the guys on bike, like they're all really active cyclists and those sort of things. So, you know, oh, they're okay. out, they're, they're outdoors sort of people. So, they, they just build the volume up over years, and then you know, they've got to a point where they can get away with something like that. You know, and it still comes at a cost. Even like yeah. the other side, people are still pretty beat, people are still pretty beat up. Um, you know, so you probably I'll probably have about four to six weeks of complete rest after I come back next year. Wow. Sort of, and then gauge how I feel. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So that's but that's that's pretty cool. Like, um, exciting for for you to be able to tackle that. Like, not many people can say that they've that they're getting ready for a thousand mile race. Um, is there a prize for that? Or? <laughs> or oh, no it's just it's to complete it
1: <laughs> uh, just getting to the end of it yeah okay. i don't mean, know it's like i think i think there's like a first place but no one cares like no one is really racing against each other you okay. know like you get there in your own time like you first you first you know all right um but yeah there's no real prize i think you just sort of get like a finishing token um and some bragging rights, but yeah, you know, I mean, to be honest, I don't think people really do that. Obviously, yeah, for any really. sort of participation type you know, stuff, I think mean, you know yeah. they're, they're asking some questions on usually. Or you know, for me, it's just it's out there. People are doing it, and just sort of I don't know. The question is, you know, can I do that? And then uh, if I can, you know, how how awesome to be able to do something like that?
0: So. Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, good luck in your preparation, and uh, I'm excited to see your journey towards it next year sometime. Eh? When when do you plan to to, to
1: do uh, it? It's- yeah, it's supposed to be March. Um, oh, just looking at the travel restrictions at the moment. So that's the only thing that the biggest obstacle that stands yeah. in the way is travel restrictions. Um, so I don't know what things look like after Christmas sort of thing as regard to travel or lockdowns and those sort of things. It seems to fluctuate pretty regularly. But if I can't do it next year, it'll be the year after, or it'll be the first year that I can out of Australia and get home. Um, so I've been sort of approved for the race. Everything's in place, and they'll, they'll defer it 12 months or so, whatever they need to. Um, so it's definitely going to happen, or I'm definitely going to start it, that's for yeah. sure. So we'll see what happens.
0: Good on you. And with your PhD, when do you hope yeah. to finish that? How long um, is that?
1: Uh, so two years left on that. So, oh, okay. um, so in the first year, there's some issues around data collection just with all the restrictions at the moment. Okay. So I'm just right. sort of mostly going through what literature there and doing some other stuff around that. Um, but yeah, so getting that done and getting some results sort of excites me as well. Because uh, it's a question I'm really interested in, so I'm really curious to see what answers I come out of that. And then I think understanding that has a lot of potential to cross over into a lot of other domains as well. You know, sort of you know, preparing for high stress has got utility in sport, in business, you know, pretty much any environment because people are under pressure everywhere they go at some point.
0: Yep. Yeah. So you work so, as a consultant as well. Do you, yeah, how's that been going? Do you find it, um, yeah, a lot of work in that field that people want to kind of pick your brains about certain things with business? And- Yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of interest. Um, It's a common problem.
1: The big thing is how do people work under pressure? Um, Mm. And just I think the whole coronavirus thing has revealed that, that a lot of people didn't adjust to it that well. And just like the simple pressure of going from the office to home, all these sort of things, I think, identified in a lot of people that there's a lot of work to be done. So there's definitely a big need. At the moment, I'm not pushing too hard just around a lot of commitments um, Mm. sort of thing. So I'm just doing... A little bit of work here and there. And then as the PhD progresses, I start to get to the back end of that. I'll start sort of pushing that out a little bit more. Um, but I'm sort of hoping to get an online package going where I can just get some good information in you know, like a nice little neat online thing. And then people can go away and sort of start developing, you know, the behaviors they need based on that. And sort of improve their ability to handle pressure and, you know, tolerate fear and these sort of things. So um, sort of slowly working on that around what little free time I've got.
0: Yeah, good on you, man. I think uh, being a dad, yeah, that takes up a lot, a lot more of your time. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, you know, to be honest, that's my priority. So, um, you know, look at it, That any mistake I make here, they've got to live with. So for me, you know, it's constantly looking at, you know, what can I do better to be a better dad? And then trying to make sure that I create space from everything else that's going on so yeah. that I've just got time for my kid. But, um, You know, when they're here, I don't want to be thinking about work that I haven't done. You know, okay. because then, if you think about too much, you get got too much hanging on you, you start to get a little bit, or your vigilance goes up and then, you know, your kids set you off a little bit quicker, you know, and if you yell at them because you're thinking about something related to work yes. or study, they think it's something like they did. They don't understand that, you know, you've got PhD deadline or, you know, they don't understand you've got bills and all these sort of things yes. and how all that works. They just understand that you've yelled at them so they must have done something wrong.
0: Yeah.
1: so sort I of. think like, I'm really careful. I don't let anything spill over into that. Yeah. Well, that's... but yeah my priority and they're heaps of fun like i use that as play time as well so we yeah. will go and play with them i was about to go out and get a skateboard so i can learn to skate with my oldest oh no um, way. nice you know because it's a, great, <laughs> it's a great way to relax as well you know you get out there play with your kids you know it's to fun and you know, they love it you uh you can wind down a little bit release low stress and that sort of thing so
0: awesome man well yeah that's um it's a really time like good advice for yeah for dads and parents to to work around it like i read your um your post this morning about you yeah, waking up early to to exercise and stuff and yeah making time if you um for things that you really want to do um yeah and, yeah, you know,
1: yeah 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 i try not to let any of my exercise impose on enough time with kids sort yeah. of thing so um when i can i not really enjoy running or exercising that real early period of the morning anyway um sort of thing but you know I always go to bed early as well. So that's the trade-off is I don't stay up watching Netflix or stay up yeah, late on the computer or anything like that. Like, I'm in so I can get a decent sleep. sleep. So I think if you're cutting down your sleep, then you're introducing other problems as well. Sort of thing. so, um, you know, we sort of, we have a bedtime routine here. We are sort of uh, almost getting older, so we're into bed earlier. Yeah. Sort of thing. But, uh, you know, I make sure that I can create the opportunity to get up early and go do these things I'm back. To help with making the kids breakfast and then doing the school drop-offs and these sort of things
0: awesome man that's um that's really good well appreciate your time um you obviously got a lot going on for you um and yeah just wish you all the best with everything that's happening man so um yeah appreciate your time and thanks for coming on the show
1: yeah no it's real pleasure i enjoyed the chat uh, thanks for inviting me as well um you know one of the things i looked at as and snc was you know how my relationship with the peers my was problem. after i left so so it's good that the guys are still keen to talk to me. <laughs> Encouraging.
0: No, and I keep following your IG page. You are posting really good things to, to think about. So, um, yeah, appreciate, yeah, appreciate that, mate.
1: Yeah, no, I actually enjoy. So, just creating different thoughts with people, just getting people thinking. Yeah, mate. So, yeah, no for worries. sure. But, yeah, no, it's been a real pleasure. All
0: no right. Thanks, Coops. And, um, yeah, thanks, everyone, for listening.